Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us this week. I'm David and joined by Brent. And we're just going to talk through, as always, a few articles we've updated on the AEI Premium site and also share a few insights from the Ag Forecast Network and specifically the forecast challenge that we have going on. It's been a lot of fun to get that up and going. So Brent, let's kick this off by talking about you wrote a couple articles this week. Uh, I guess I took a little break from writing, got some more creativity here. And you covered a couple articles and I want to kick off the first one. And it started as an email you sent me and I responded and goes, you just need to write an article about this. And it's, is it all awful? And so I think the impetus of this where you were scrolling Twitter and you found all sorts of ways the world was going to end. So why don't you uh, chat a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know why. Every now and then something hits you and it did. And I, I was reading through my Twitter feed. I'm like, my gosh, this is crazy. Like it went from, you know, the pandemic is back. We're all going to get sick. We're going to starve. World War Three has started. We're not going to have any fertilizer. I mean, it's just one after another. Everything was negative. And I just started thinking about it a little bit. And for one, as you pointed out, like half the things on this list, they're like 21 things. And that was just like, what is at the top of my you know, mind? I could have come up with more. Half of them are probably exact opposites. So China isn't going to crash and buy all of our farmland, uh, which was one of the things that was in the feed there for a while. Like, oh my gosh, the Chinese are buying all of our farmland. And Another example is the U.S. economy isn't going to go into recession and overheat at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I just thought it was interesting. I think this really complicates our, you know, decision-making, our frame of mind. And I think it's hard to make decisions when there's a chaos, you know, everywhere you look, there's chaos. And I think that makes it hard. And so one of the things we need to do is just step back from all of it and really start thinking about it. And there's a guy I read a lot, Bill Blaine, and I think he's a great writer. You know, I just find it entertaining as much as anything, but one of the statements he says often is things are never as bad as you fear and seldom as good as you hope. And I think, you know, for most situations, that's really the case. And, uh, you know, so I think, yeah, step back from it. And actually, if you think about it in terms of ag, it's pretty good right now. Like things are really pretty good. It may change. Yeah. May get even better. So I think it's important to just put that back in perspective. Now, if you're like, you know, you live where I'm at, I was telling David the other day, you know, it's, we are in the midst of a serious, serious drought. I think it's worse than like 2012 in part because it started earlier. And so it's kind of depressing that way. And sometimes I think we just have to step back from all of it and take a deep breath. Uh, You run through the OODA loop and uh, get yourself oriented and don't forget to keep making decisions. And Brent, one thing I'll add to this that you, you know, my idea you wrote about in the article, I think it's really important to mention here in this discussion is the most likely outcome is often missing from these narratives. You know, in the yeah. U.S. economy, it's sort of this incomes and wealth all slowly but surely increase over time. And so we oftentimes hear about the extremes. And so when we see 
extreme case over here and extreme case over there, you know, to the upside and to the downside, we feel like those are the only two possible outcomes. But if we think about the range of possible outcomes, the distribution of possible outcomes, we know that these are those are tail end extremes uh, that have a fairly low probability, but that the most likely outcome is somewhere in the middle. And tying this back to agriculture and yields, we typically think about uh, oh, it's going to be a 2012-like weather year. How many years in a row have we hear about 2012-like weather events? And in reality, that's like a one in 38 or one in 50 or even a one in 60 year outcome. It's a very low outcome. A lot of years are plus or minus five bushel of the trend line for corn, but we don't ever talk about that as often. Uh, or we think about it as our prices and the farm economy are going to be like 1980 or 2011 or 2013, right? We always compare to these extremes. And it kind of leads us to, you know, look for black swans or count black swans. We're always thinking about these extreme outcomes when most of our lives and most of our careers are spent in the kind of boring middle, which is a, usually a positive outcome, a usually positive story. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've done it to ourselves. You know, you go on Twitter and now everybody's like, oh, here's statement X. Here's what I learned. And then you got 12. We are giving like credibility we're not vetting our experts anymore and everybody's an expert on stuff. And most of these issues we're talking about are so complicated and complex that they're not going to be solved by a 10 tweet Twitter thread. It's just not that simple. And I'm really getting frustrated with it. And you see it everywhere. Like in our current environment, our, community or hospital struggling with to keep a nursing home open and it's interesting how people come say well the solution you just got to pay them pay people more to work there because we can't get help well okay it sounds like a reasonable thing like just keep increasing rates until people come well yeah but then what does that do to the rest of your employees wages and why aren't people here and oh there's limited house. i mean there's just so such a complex problem that you can't solve it with one simple solution. And most of these things are way more complex than that. That thought exercise, always ask why three or four times before you get to the bottom of something, right? You got to keep digging through the levels. Switching gears just a little bit, Brent, stagflation, this is something you and I have been talking about a, a bit, a while. And now I'd hear it coming around a little more frequently. I hear more and more folks talking about, you wrote a really great article about that. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you started talking about the 1970s a little bit, um, but tell us a little bit about the article and what you're thinking about after writing it. Well, yeah. So just wanted to one, get it out there because most of us either haven't ever experienced it or don't really remember exactly what it was. I mean, it's like you go back to most of your macroeconomic textbooks, there's probably like few pages on it or something and so one of the things I wanted to like educate people as to what the situation was and that's high rates of inflation relatively high rates of inflation slow economic growth most cases brought on by supply shocks the last time we had this was done with the OPEC you know oil embargo or reduced supply in the early 70s and then late in the 80s and creates a price shock and that tends to kind of like put the economy backwards and 
So oftentimes, you know, the policymakers are left with a tough choice because if they accommodate it and try to increase demand, you're left with generally higher price levels. And um, we've had our supply shocks now and they continue. And so the, you know, the question, the tough part about stagflation is the cure is slowing down the economy, usually from a monetary perspective. The problem is if you've got slow growth already, it means you're going to end up with a really deep recession. And that's what makes it tough. And the good thing is right now we have a lot lower unemployment than we had the last time we had these problems. So it gives the Fed more ability to do it, to fix it. But the other problem is that monetary policy is a slow, blunt instrument. And it's not like the Fed can fix this tonight, tomorrow. It's going to take a long time. And so that was the other key thing, I think, point in this article is that this is not a, you know, if it's a movie, we're in the first, you know, 20 minutes of it, not the last 10 minutes. It's going to take a while to play out. Yeah, it's uh, the Fed spent the last... 10 years trying to stimulate the economy. So this idea of like, how do we turn this around and how do we get it going the other direction is a really important consideration. And they've only raised short-term rates once so far in here in March. And so and there's a lot of moving pieces of that. So again, I think this is going to be a term that's going to get thrown out a lot, kind of like hyperinflation has been thrown around the last year and a half. And I think many people use it without even knowing what they're talking about or, you know, being able to explain what they're talking about, I think stagflation is going to be the next one. So Brent, to wrap this week's recording up with drought on the mind, I think our perceptions of what the U.S. yield might turn out for corn and soybeans is a little bit different. So again, that we've kicked off the contest, 16 questions throughout April through May, and the first four are up. We're going to talk about corn and we're going to talk about this long burn question. And so this one's going to be around a long time. It's the probability of the November WASI report estimating the U2022 corn crop above 181 bushels per acre. You can read more. 181 is going to be what we call a quote unquote normal year. That's where the USDA initially pegged the crop back in February. And that was all based on historic data. There was no forecasting there. It was just sort of a baseline. I wrote some articles. I think history would tell us there's a 65% chance of uh, above normal, above, in some cases, the trend line, if we know nothing about the corn crop. That's where I put my first forecast. I think the challenging question is, when do we know enough about the yield to start to change our forecast? And I'm, I learned something last year that I need to update my thinking about, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So I'm at 65%. If you turn on the consensus, it's at 43%. So I'm getting out on that limb that Brent always warns us about. Brent, where are you at? What's your thinking? 40% I'm under. So there's no group think here at AEI. We're definitely willing to have different opinions. And I'm definitely trying to win. <laughs> I want to win. You want your money back. <laughs> I do. And uh, I'm really trying to win. People who know me know that I don't want to pay anything out. I'm going to be happy to pay it out. But, and even if I win, I'd pay it out, but I probably won't win, but I am under 40%. I'm at 40%. And the reason I think so is I just think that right now, given the information we have, I don't think conditions are ripe for 
and a at or above trend yield. I've heard people say things, and David, you told me this the other day. People say things like, "Well, I just can't imagine we can have a record yield." So I'm going to. I think the trends. Too high. Well, I, I don't think that's the case. I think the reason I'm less is because I think it is exceedingly dry in part of the country. Now that part doesn't matter as much as the central corn belt, but where the central corn belt is, it's really wet. Um, now <clears throat> I am usually view that being wet as a good thing, even in the central corn belt. So that's making me a little nervous. Maybe I'm a little too low and I maybe I should be above the consensus right now. But right now, I just I have a hard time seeing how the conditions are super favorable to big yields. Uh, as a reminder, if you don't know where to start, if you haven't logged a forecast yet because you don't know where to start, start with 50-50. That's you know, maximum certainty. Or just log a forecast and it instantly changes to what the consensus is. You can just mirror the consensus. It's a way of sort of getting your feet into the pool, so to speak. But yeah, I'm in the Eastern Corn Belt in Indiana and it's slow planting because everything is wet and it's supposed to warm up this weekend. So probably get some drying done. But I think what's really powerful here is you can see how your backyard biases might be showing out here. So I, for one, don't think we know enough about the corn crop yet to make a lot of changes from the historic over average. Yeah. I will say this. I am watching the planting pace. I think if we start to see the planting pace as we head towards the middle of May, Jeff Young, who writes those weekly yield updates, he reminds us that that could be an important factor. I think that would cause me to change my forecast here in the next month. But Brent, I want to switch gears just oh, a little I, bit. Go ahead. Brent. I, you made me think of one other thing I think is important. So, we're still in La Nina, right? And so that is part of my thinking that, well, maybe La Nina leads us toward lower corn yields. But I am not, after I was going to say that, I think I need to go back. I think you wrote an article about this a few years ago as to you know, whether that statement has any basis in reality or not. And I'm not sure that it's a very strong signal and as certainly a strong signal as I was going to say it was. So something else to think about. Well, one thing about it, when you write a blog for eight years, it serves as a humbling sometimes reminder of what you've wrote. So this was from 2015. And I guess one of the things that stand out is we need to go update this article, but there are years when, I guess there are a lot of blues, which are La Nina conditions that are below the trend line. There's a lot of El Ninos that are red that are above the trend line, but the, you know, 2012 was a neutral year. And so it's, it's a very interesting sort of play out there. So I guess. So 43, your statement in this article, okay. I can just see it says La Nina results in above trend corn yields 43% of the time. So 57%. So that would offset your normal trend yield advantage, maybe. So maybe I am right to be a little bit below trend, but we'll see. That's why we do the contest. This wasn't scripted. Everyone could see on the video that I was searching this. <laughs> I need to update my expectations just a little bit. What I need to see is what period of years that I was using to determine you know, when the period was for El Nino, La Nina, or basic. I do remember this, Brent. And what I remember here is there are very big state level differences. And so some yes. states are way more impacted than other states by these cycles. And so 
if you're watching this, this is El Nino conditions and the probability of above average corn yields. And so Minnesota and Wisconsin, that's eight out of 10 times they have really good yields. Um, El Nino. And El Nino. So yeah, just thinking about this, that the regional impacts, the state level impacts, it's all important. So I want to switch gears here and I want to tell you a lesson that I've learned. Last year, and if you participated last year, you can go back and see sometimes humbling. My ranking here was seventh percentile, meaning 93% of other people did better than I did, meaning this is probably a bad challenge. It's like, you know, almost proof that Brent and I are going to lose. I uh, did not change my forecast quick enough last year. And so I stayed with that 60, 65% base rate all the way until the middle of July. And I actually upped my forecast then. And I held it at a higher level to the middle of August. So one of the lessons that I should keep in my mind is I probably don't change my forecast quick enough, but I will add the yield levels will different, but there's a consistency from year to year that these are quote unquote normal. And so last year at this time, the probability of a normal above normal yields based on the USDA's definition of normal, that yield estimate they put out. Last year, that was at about a 50% probability, 55% almost. And then it jumped into May based on planting conditions by the consensus. And so I think what we can recognize is there's more pessimism about corn yields this year than there was a year ago. Again, this is a very interesting insight that the forecast network can provide you personally, but more broadly about what other people are thinking. That's unique this year, how this year is different than the past. Yeah. People are more pessimistic. This year, not surprising given the just general negative attitude people have right now, I think. But anyway. All right. Well, that's all we have for this week. Stay tuned until next week. But in the meantime, stay curious. Thanks.